please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading Philip Pullman's new versions of Fairy Tales from the Brothers Grimm. It's more than a simple retelling of these stories that have become so familiar to many of us. It's a completely new translation of the original German versions of the stories with commentary and backgrounds to help explain the origin of these folk tales. The book is a fascinating read, especially in terms of highlighting exactly how much we've sanitized these stories. They weren't originally intended as children's stories, but rather as entertainment and wisdom for everyone. One of the stories I've grown to love is one I didn't know before reading this book. It's called The Fisherman and His Wife. The tale focuses on a poor fisher and his spouse who live in a hovel near the sea and struggle to eke out a living. Their lives are fairly miserable, but it's the wife who struggles the most with their circumstances, something of which she never fails to remind her husband. One day, the fisher happens to be at the sea and catch an enormous and beautiful flounder. He's mesmerized by the impressive fish, but truly shocked when he hears it speak. I'm no ordinary flounder, the fish says, but an enchanted prince. What good would it do you to eat me? I wouldn't taste very good at all. Just release me back into the water, the fish firmly states. Still in shock, the fisher releases the flounder back into the water and then runs home to tell his wife. When she sees he's returned without a catch, she rants at him, you worthless scoundrel, and he quickly tells her about the extraordinary fish that he caught. Why did you turn it back, she demands. Why didn't you ask him for something? The man is stumped, illustrating both his naivety and his detachment. For what should I have asked? A nice house to replace this hovel, his wife chastises him. Now go back and find that fish and demand that he give us a decent place to live. The fisher reluctantly heads back to the sea. Standing on the shore, he calls for the enchanted flounder, who immediately appears and asks what the fisher seeks. When the man explains that his wife wants a new house, the fish immediately says, Go, it's done. When the fisher returns home, he finds the hovel replaced by a nice, neat, cozy little cottage. Content, he walks in and sits down to supper. His desire, her desires awakened, the wife walks in and demands that he immediately return to the sea. This cottage is far too small, she says. Tell him we need a mansion. The fisher protests, but his wife kicks him out of the house. Go and do it, she commands. The fisher returns to the sea and calls for the flounder. As he surfaces, the fish looks at the man and says, What does she want now? The fisher reluctantly says, A mansion. The fish blinks and then says, Go home, it's done. 
When the man returns home, he finds that cozy cottage replaced by an enormous marble mansion. Overwhelmed by its size and luxury, he walks in and stands there gazing in awe. When his wife says, no, 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 this will never do. Go back and tell the fish that I want to be queen. The man tries to protest again, but again the wife kicks him out, saying, go and do it. The poor fisher returns to the sea and calls for the fish. When the flounder surfaces, he asks, what does she demand now? The man trembles as he says, she wants to be queen. The fish blinks and says, go, it's done. The man returns home. He finds that mansion replaced by an enormous palace that seems to have no end. There are soldiers and servants everywhere he turns. When he enters the palace, he looks at his wife and says, Surely you're content now. She doesn't speak for a few moments and then finally says, No, this still isn't enough. Go back to the fish. Tell him I want to be God. The man is speechless, and he stands there for several moments, silent. What? There is only one God. The wife rolls her eyes and orders the soldiers to escort her husband from the palace. Tell him, I want to be God. Once more, the poor fisher goes back to the seashore and calls for the fish, who comes at once and says, what more does she want? His voice trembling with fear, the fisher replies, she wants to be God. The fish blinks and says, go home. It's back to the hovel for both of you. It's a humorous and entertaining story, but it also gets at the heart of the struggle that is central to our human experience. There is so much that we want, so much that we think we need, so much that we believe will bring us joy and contentment, and yet little of it actually does. It just seems to feed the insatiable hunger for things deep inside of us. That's what we see happening in the gospel today. As we've seen over the last year, as we've made our way through Mark's gospel, there is a continuing struggle among the disciples to understand the message that Jesus is teaching. Oh, they're impressed with Jesus and drawn to his passion and his courage, but they're also deeply enamored with the crowds and the attention that Jesus is gaining. Jesus, of course, pushes back strongly against those attachments, reminding them at every turn that the way of discipleship leads to the cross. But it's a message that they never quite seem to grasp. Just before these verses that we read today, Jesus has pulled the disciples aside on the way to Jerusalem and reminded them that they're going to Jerusalem to confront the religious and political powers, the powers that be, and that it will lead to his crucifixion and resurrection. As my mother used to say, it's as if it goes in one ear and out the other. 
Now as they're getting back on the road to Jerusalem, James and John come up to Jesus and demand places of honor, one at his left and one at his right side. Jesus is shocked by their request. Not surprising, considering the conversation that he's just had with them about the inevitability of sacrifice. You have no idea what you're asking, he says. Jesus then goes on to ask if they're really ready to drink from the cup of suffering to endure the baptism of sacrifice that lies ahead without so much as a second thought and never bothering to consider the implications. They reply, yes, of course. All they really see is the crowds and the constant attention they give to Jesus. That's really what the disciples are after here, I think. They want the adulation and the admiration of those throngs of people. That's why they ask for those places of honor. Jesus is left to shake his head in disbelief at their ignorant, arrogant naivety. They don't understand that the heart of the gospel, no matter how hard he's tried to teach them, is about service and suffering, sacrifice for the good of others. In their minds, it's still all about power and position and prosperity and privilege. And the time is growing short, and they still don't get it. You will be required to make great sacrifices and endure tremendous suffering, Jesus says. But it isn't for me to give honors in the beloved community of God's reign and rule. And then the other disciples catch wind of what James and John have been trying to do. And then all hell breaks loose. A fight ensues among the disciples, and Jesus has to stop it. And he does so by reminding them that the whole conversation, the whole argument about honor and influence and God's dominion stands in contrast to the very heart of God's will. The pursuit of such things is a mark of this world, not of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, honor is not shown to those who vie for power, but only to those who give themselves away for the sake of others. Those who seek to serve those who are so often regarded as last and least and lost by the world. This is the very heart of the gospel, the very truth that Jesus embodies. Biblical scholar Jerry Wheaton has written, Jesus lays waste the tyranny of self-preservation and the subhuman life devoted to the pursuit of status, prestige, and one's advantage in society and erects in its place a vision for human living turned outward, away from the self and directed toward the good of others. Although such other-oriented living cannot be said to exhaust the meaning of human existence, it makes a vital and irreplaceable contribution to the meaning of human being in the world, and thus to human flourishing. A few days ago, I came across the story of St. Callistus, one of the first bishops of Rome. 
He lived near the end of the second and beginning of the third centuries. Now, Callistus' life was anything but easy. He was born into slavery and struggled for most of his adult life to gain his freedom. After several attempts to escape, he was imprisoned and languished in solitary confinement for several years. When he was finally released, he was entrusted to the care of Zephaniris, a kindly bishop in the church who charged Callistus with the care of a cemetery. The elderly bishop mentored the young man and eventually ordained him a deacon and then a priest. He served with compassion and distinction. When Zephyrinius died, Callistus was elected by the people of Rome to succeed him, much to the irritation of Hippolytus, a popular and charismatic priest in the city. Hippolytus thought it was a scandal that a former enslaved person was elected bishop of Rome, and he detested Callistus' tolerance for those he regarded as sinners. The truth is, though, that Hippolytus wanted to be bishop and resented Callistus having been chosen over him. Callistus welcomed one and all to Christ's table, no matter their identity or state of life. Those known as murderers and thieves and adulterers and prostitutes found a place in Christ's body under the mercy of Callistus. Much to the chagrin of Hippolytus, Callistus even allowed divorced and remarried deacons and priests to serve without limits. Hippolytus never wavered in his withering criticism of the bishop, but neither did Callistus ever utter an unkind word about the arrogant priest. Instead, he chose to live with love and grace even toward his most ardent detractor. Callistus' tenure as bishop was short. It was only five years, but he left behind a larger and more inclusive church one that modeled humility and grace and more clearly resembled the wounded yet risen body of Jesus Christ. Our world doesn't quite know what to do with humility. Much like those first disciples, we are all too often driven by the pursuit of power and position and privilege and prosperity so often worried about getting more and having more, regardless of the cost to others, to the planet, or to our own souls. Jesus calls us back to the heart of the gospel, to the life-giving paradox of suffering service. It's the truth envisioned by Isaiah in the suffering servant who offers his life for the sake of others, and the same truth proclaimed by the writer of Hebrews who extols the virtues of a great high priest who is able to show compassion because he has suffered, because he has endured the same trials and tests that we ourselves have known. If we want to find true and lasting life, a life of meaning and purpose that matters not just to us but to others, it can only be found in giving ourselves away for the sake of others through service. Amen.